Second Peter chapter two verses one through ten. Second Peter chapter two verses one through ten. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be <coughs> false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will ex- ex- exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous and tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. And that's as far as we'll go this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we give thanks to you for your word. We ask that you would bless it according to your will. Lord, we ask for an increasing understanding which can only come from your Holy Spirit. We pray, open our eyes, strengthen our hearts, undergird us with the truth. Build us firmly upon that foundation. And then help us to go forth into the world with a message of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thus far we have read the holy, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Well, there are false teachers, aren't there, in our world? There are false prophets, and there are many of them. They abound. I I think this last week there must have been five, maybe six different instances when I've heard from people who have shared me something of what they believe. And everything that they said, there were there were intermixed statements that were utterly false. It's an extraordinary thing that we can listen to other people share their faith and, and pick and carefully examine with, with our scriptures open as good Berean Christians. And we can hear, and we often hear, Uh, false notions, untrue things about God, false prophetic understanding, misunderstanding and misinformation. This is the day of misinformation. Well, it's been afflicting the church since the beginning. There are false teachers and prophets that you can tune into on any given Sunday. They are the ones who have the most money, the biggest airplanes, the most bizarre personalities, and of course who enrich themselves at the expense of their exploited people. I don't normally dwell, nor do I make names of those, uh, list names of those who are outside of the church, who 
represent and are, in fact, false prophets. But I think Peter has done that in some way for us this morning. And I intend this morning to at least help and equip God's people to recognize untruth when, in fact, it is everywhere. You know, it began in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan spoke to Eve and he said, You will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, from your eye, then from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. From the very mouth of, of Satan, uh, or of the serpent, Satan spoke. And Satan has been misleading since the beginning of all time. Those who speak untruth are still instruments as much as that serpent ever was. Satan still speaks, and he speaks from pulpits here in the Western world. We are all too well acquainted with the prophets of Baal who spoke, and who spoke of Baal and how he was simply resting, perhaps as Elijah Elijah taunted them. They were certain that Elijah would call forth fire, send forth fire upon the earth and upon the sacrifice, and receive it up and be pleased. They were false prophets themselves, and they were false teachers misleading the people of Israel. Jeremiah had a much stronger word to say against those who were religious leaders of the people of God. In Jeremiah 23, 25 and following, he says, as he speaks God's words, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate one to another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? Later on, behold, I am against the false prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares, Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them, and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting, yet I did not send them or command them, nor did I furnish this people, they furnished this people, the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. We're going to hear a great deal about false prophets this morning, and it's contextual Relation is found easily in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, Peter has been saying, look, I, I encourage you, I want you to be built upon the firmness of the Word of God. He has said, you will keep yourself and you will, you will keep your soul in the evil day until uh, the very end if you apply all diligence in pursuing what is true, what is faithful, what is morally excellent, what is full and real and true knowledge, what is self-controlled, what is godly, what is reflective of biblical kindness and love. When he even greeted them and he said, look, grace to you and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God. You see, from the beginning, he is building up this idea that if they keep themselves in the knowledge of God, if they build themselves up in the knowledge of God, they will be kept for the day of judgment and even in the day of difficulty. <clears throat> he makes it clear also that those who are lacking in those things have forgotten their purification from their former sins. 
So he calls them to diligence and he calls them to examine carefully their lives to be and, and he says, I'm ready to remind you of things, these things. I'll remind you until I come to the end. And of course, his, the end of his life is very much before him. And so he affirms the things which are true. Peter says, and he reminds them, I, I, I was an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw Christ in his divinity and the glory of the Lord un, uh, revealed. And he says, more than this, we have the sure word of God. And he says, you must pay attention to it. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And he has clarified that prophecy, scriptural prophecy, biblical preaching, all of it depends not upon an act of the human will, but upon the Holy Spirit who enables men to speak from God. It is in that context that Peter issues a warning. And that's where we come first in this passage this morning. Uh, the first point of it is simply this, danger. There are false teachers in the church in every age. And you and I are well, call, uh, well commanded by God to be on the lookout for them. The language is interesting. He says in verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, past tense, just as there will also be false teachers among you, present tense. His intention is to get us to understand that in every age there are false teachers and prophets. We'll understand in a moment why that is the case, but there are false teachers in every age. We don't need to look very far. Arius, 300 AD, he believed that Christ was finite, a created being, not co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. It was necessary that the Council of Nicaea condemned him and condemned his views as heresy. We have our own present-day heresies. Robert Morris, recently I, uh, we, we listened on Wednesday evening in the Bible study. He said these words. He's a, he's a preacher. He has 100,000 active attendees at his various sites and satellite sites of churches. He has television shows in 190 countries. I never heard of him before, quite frankly, uh, before Arnold pointed him out to me. He, he has radio shows in 6,400 cities. He's the chancellor of the King's University. He's an author of many best-selling books, and he said this, even though Jesus was fully God, he completely laid down his divinity when he was on this earth, completely, he reaffirmed, I'm quoting him directly, so that he could become completely human. Well, this is heresy rejected by any one of the early seven councils of the church. They affirmed fully that God is fully man and fully God, co-equal of equal substance with the Father, dwelling eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit. He is the eternal Son of God who cannot lay aside his divinity, but who took up humanity by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that he would lay aside, laid aside his divinity. This is a spurious argument, one meant to in some way make Jesus more palatable to the human mind. But Christ is a mystery and a glorious mystery in the sense that you cannot fully understand him nor, play, nor, nor present him as 
a human being only because He is the infinite Son of God. He is both knowable and unknowable. Glorious in His power. Joyce Meyer is a present-day preacher who has multiple airplanes, is on every television channel in America and throughout the world. People love her. They read her books. They emulate her. I'll tell you a story that when we were in seminary some 26 years ago, 27 years ago, I was preaching out in Alabama. It meant a very long ride out to Cuba, Alabama. And it was a long, long day. And we'd come home listening to the radio at night in our uh, Chevy pickup where there was nothing but one bench seat and three kids and two adults. And we would drive home. We were as poor as, they po- as anyone possibly could be, but we would listen to the radio. And we listened to a preacher, a, a male at night, who seemed to say really good things in a very matter-of-fact way. We enjoyed listening to this man until we realized that there were things about what he said that were just slightly off. We just couldn't quite understand. Why would he say this and then make this conclusion? And we thought, this guy is wrong. This guy is in error. And then we realized it was a woman by the name of Joyce Myers. And she says this, the devil thought he had it. The devil thought he had won. Oh, they were having the biggest party that has ever been had. This is a direct quote. They had my Jesus on the floor and they were standing on his back, jumping up and down, laughing, and he had become sin. Don't you think that God was pacing, wanting to put a stop to what was going on? In other words, the inactivity and the indecision and the inability of God to bring an end to Christ's suffering. All the hosts of hell were up on him, up on him, up on him. The angels are in agony. All the creation is groaning. All the hosts of hell was upon him, upon him. They got on him. They got down on the floor and got on him. And they were laughing and mocking. Ha ha, you trusted God. And look where you ended up. You thought he would save you and get you off that cross. He didn't. And she says in follow up, there is no hope of anyone going to heaven unless they believe this truth I'm presenting. You cannot go to heaven unless you believe with all your heart that Jesus took your place in hell. I'm here to proclaim this morning that there was no accident whatsoever about what Jesus Christ did on that cross. That God was not inactive, but rather it sent his son to be a propitiation for sin. Christ became sin for your sake and mine. He did not go to hell. He satisfied the wrath of God and had no obligation whatsoever to Satan. She also said this. He could have helped himself up until the point where he said, I commend my spirit into your hands. At that point, he couldn't do anything. Well, she says, at that point, he couldn't do nothing for himself anymore. He had become sin. He was no longer the Son of God. The minute that blood sacrifice was accepted, Jesus was the first human being that was ever born again, she says. She goes on, I'm not going to say anything more. She denies that she is a sinner. She says, I'm not poor, I'm not miserable, I'm not a sinner. That's a lie from the pit of hell. She says, I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore, and the religious world thinks that's heresy. They want you to hang for it, but the Bible says that I'm righteous, and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. 
She needs to read Romans 7. She needs to read the Bible. She needs to listen to Christ. She needs to read 1 John. She needs to read Psalm 139 and 103. She needs to read the scriptures from the beginning to the end. There's a lot more that she says. Joel Osteen himself, uh, Dr. Dr. Horton describes him as a cotton candy gospel preacher. He says that ultimately Joel Osteen's perspective is that God is a resource to help each of us realize our potential to be all that we can be. And his gospel message is all about the gospel of humanity and not the gospel of God nor of Jesus Christ. I don't really hear an awful lot about Christ in Joel Osteen's preaching, and I have listened. Or T.D. Jakes, the wonderful preacher that I used to really enjoy as a young man. I loved that man, but he denies that God is distinctly three persons. I remember someone saying to me years ago, Pastor, you shouldn't say a single word about this, uh, about heresy. You should never point it out. You should never explicitly state anything relating to heresy. But the truth of the matter is, <clears throat> although she wanted me to concentrate on the positive, the truth is that the Bible, within the Bible, God's word actually points out specific individuals, much like Paul did as he pointed to uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, as he pointed to Alexander the coppersmith, who did him much harm. Or Peter, who calls those who preach untruth as waterless springs for which the judgment of God waits. Peter's aim this morning is to equip the church and to name heresy so that the church can guard against pernicious and wicked heresies. Well, let's look secondly at the nature of those heresies. The nature of those heresies. They're destructive, he says. They're erroneous descriptions and assertions of truth that mislead and destroy souls. Any theological assertions that deny or contradict scriptures. And that's why it's necessary that all of us be trained in the word of God. Maybe you're listening to that quiet voice that nags at your thinking. Well, what we really need to do is become a church that more and that entertains more and concentrates a little less on the word of God. Compress the period of time when the preaching of the word is paramount and and, and certainly encourage the pastor to preach a, a more palatable lesson. This is what many think. But the truth is that the smallest bit of untruth leads to destruction, like the leak under a house. I Years ago, there was this house that I did work <clears throat> at, and uh, through many, many years, a very, very small leak developed under a bathroom floor, and it led to, ultimately, as I got underneath this house and looked, a vast plenitude of black mold and mildew underneath this house that was everywhere underneath, and no one had any idea. But it led to the rot of all the framing underneath the bathroom. It was utterly ruined. The whole thing had to be completely torn out because of one small leak behind the sink. Let in just a little bit of untruth, especially as it relates to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You will inevitably slide down that hill. 
and you will embrace things you never thought you would. These individuals, these men who seemed to have believed the gospel, uh, they have they are denying the master uh, who bought them. What is Peter saying? Is, is Peter saying that they have left the Lord, though they were in originally completely and, and truly saved, that they have been granted eternal life, and now they have forsaken eternal life, and they have lost what had been granted to them? No, because... Certainly Romans chapter 8, and certainly Christ who speaks in the high priestly prayer denies that any who are his can be lost. But rather he's saying that there have been people who have come into the church. They have come into the church, they sin in the congregation, they join, they make vows with their mouths, they put money in the plate, they speak platitudes to each other, and they say complimentary things to the preachers but they are filled with untruth and given just a little bit of an entrance or a crack in the door, they will begin to share their heresies with you. They deny the master who bought them. They they fundamentally deny the nature of redemption. They deny that Christ died. or They deny the necessity of Christ and his death. There have been people who have come into our church in such a way. There have been people who have come and said there is no such thing as hell. There is no such thing as eternal punishment. There are people who have come in and said you concentrate so much upon the word of God. uh, This is you're dead. You're dying. Someone has come into the congregation and said, surely Christ has already returned. We're not awaiting a second coming of the Lord. Well, there are many things that people deny. <clears throat> they deny that sinners are purchased from the, their enslavement to Satan, to sin. There, are many, there have been many in the church who have denied that mankind is utterly and pervasively depraved. They have denied every core tenet of the gospel and of the, of the faith. If there's anything that could be denied, they have denied it. There is a history of men and women denying it. But they confess these things with their lives, with their lips, and yet their lives contradict them. He says, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Paul wrote to Timothy, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. These people made credible professions of faith. They were members of the church. Isn't it true that people that we know are false teachers and preachers and prophets in our present day and age, don't they have extraordinary seeming testimonies of the grace of God evident in their lives? They they, they can speak and they will tell you that God spoke to them in an audible voice in the shower that morning. 
They will tell you that God spoke to them last night, that God was speaking even now through them. They want in the worst way for you to come to the conclusion that when they speak, God speaks. Their intention is that you would then listen to and follow every single word that they say without question. They seek to to undermine you. They seek to use you. We'll look at that in a moment. But they know what they're doing, don't they? They They deny many things, but also that Christ is coming again. They deny much about Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 21, says, Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Yesterday I was at the hospital. I was ministering to people. I heard people tell me that Jesus Christ is not God. I heard people tell me that God is not a person, nor persons, but rather is a force. I heard people deny the humanity of Christ, the divinity of Christ. I heard it all. Where do they get that but from false teachers who they are following and who are caught up in the same error? They undermine cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, the nature of Christ, his person, his divinity, substitutionary atonement. And I'll never forget the moment when I I was trying to identify with someone who had very contradictory points in in their profession of faith. But, but it seemed to me they identified as Christians. They certainly said that. They were members of the church. And in fact, they were a preacher in a congregational church. And I said, well, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And they said, well, I'm sorry, I don't subscribe to the substitu- substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Which told me, well, no matter, what, no matter whether they, 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 they may have all the trappings of Christianity, they don't have Jesus Christ. They don't have the truth. The truth is that you can attend church and pray regularly and do great moral things. You can even preach, but you're lost and you deny the Lord whom you proclaim if you don't believe in the God of Scriptures. Like Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above all names. Joyce Myers needs to read Philippians chapter 2. We come to their motivations. Thirdly, their motivations... Well, Peter identifies them very easily. There's sensuality, greed, and exploitation. Do you know a single preacher on Sunday morning television who doesn't own an airplane, perhaps a Gulf Stream? Do you know a single teacher on public television on Sunday mornings that isn't filthy rich, that doesn't have an extraordinary mansion, who doesn't show off his blood, I mean his gold and his bling, who isn't deeply, deeply proud of himself and his own possessions. Well, there are many who we have seen who are filled with themselves. There was recently a man who was a preacher down in, I think it was Harlem or in the Bronx, somewhere in New York, in one of the boroughs. 
He had stolen an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of money, tens of thousands of dollars from a member of his congregation lied and deceived. And he had gone out and spent lots and lots of money on Christian Dior and Gucci and all sorts of things. And he was there sitting somehow in the pulpit with his wife, who is a co-preacher in his church on television. And he was covered in gold and masked men. Think, I think show a great deal, a great more shrewdness than him, went into the church during a live stream, took all of his money and his gold, and he was devastated. Well, he, I, th- I think those men were an instrument of the judgment of God. Shouldn't that man take notice and say, surely the gospel that I preach of health, wealth, and goodness, that God exists to enrich us, that surely I have been wrong. God is displaying to me this very night that there is something greater and larger than myself, more important than my possessions, that I must believe in him. He didn't get the lesson. Well, there are many who come into our world and who have many possessions and who who extend to the church their own sense of calling that they have been called by God. And yet they all stand in their pulpits and speak of the evil of fornication, of sexual infidelity, of the use of resources and of being enriched by the things of the world and of greed and yet they are all brought down, men like Ted Haggard and Jim Baker and Bill Gothard and Tony Alamo and Bob Coy and Fred Phelps and Dave Reynolds and Doug Phillips and Jimmy Swaggart and Mark Driscoll and Christian uh, 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 Christian PCA minister down in, in, uh, uh, in, in Florida, Carl Lentz in New York and Matt Chandler, all of them guilty of some impropriety, some infidelity, some or even guilty of rape and drug use. These are pastors of mega churches. There's a common thread. They're rich and they prey upon their people. They have no interest in Christ. They have interest in the things of this world. How do they deal with God's people? Well, they manipulate them. They groom them. They make an idolatry of their persona. They are guilty of deep greed. What they really want to do is make multiple satellites of their home church so that they can increase the pyramid scheme of enriching themselves on the tithes and offerings of God's people. But Jesus said something, by their fruit you shall know them. I think of our roots as a Presbyterian church in America, where we have come from. In 1973, the PCA was formed out of uh, numbers of churches and pastors and people who left the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, which is in serious, significant, and rapid decline, thanks be to God. They had denied that, uh, they had begun to deny the supernatural, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the full humanity of Christ, the virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, and those those declines in their understanding of the substance of theology concerning 
Christ, his person, and his work, led to eventually in 2014 the affirming of homosexual marriage, abortion on demand, and gender mutilating care. That's where they are today. Surely Ichabod has been declared over that denomination and many, many other churches in our land. The glory of the Lord has departed. The glory of the Lord has departed. God is not there. They have the trappings of religion, but God is not there. If the word of God is not there and upheld, if the truth of God is not preached, God is not there. You can gather 40,000 people in Houston, Texas. God is not there. You can gather 100,000 people across the world. God is not there. Now, I know I'm not denying that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But I'm saying that preachers who say that God is with them, that God is in his message, that God is speaking through them, no, God is not speaking through him or her at all. There are three examples given to us in the passage this morning. Angelic beings, you think of angels, majestic, glorious, holy beings. And yet they sinned against God. And God did not spare them. When did this occur? Where are we told about this in Scripture? Surely Jude and various other places speak at least of the downfall of Lucifer in in that period of time before, before man walked before God. God created in the space of six days, and he created the earth and all that is in them, all of the interplanetary bodies, all created things created in the space of six days. And somewhere in those six days, somewhere in that brief period of time when man stood before God, somewhere between God's initial and immediate speaking of all things into being each each day, 24-hour periods, between that time and when the serpent walked in the garden with Eve, Lucifer fell. And he sinned against God. And there were others who were with him. There were others who believed that they themselves were equal with God. They sinned against God. And what God did with them is he consigned them, cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. God has restrained these wicked angels, has restrained them. Certainly Satan holds an interesting position in God's providence there are times when God or there is a time when God re- releases him to cause trouble in the world certainly the, he enables he is he is permitted Satan in some ways to infect our world with unbelief that God might be glorified in the salvation of sinners but certain angels God has jailed and judged and cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. God in his power did this. The second example is given to us of Noah and the destruction of the wicked through the flood. God looked at the earth and he saw that together mankind was as wicked as they possibly could be. There were, there were none who were good. That the wickedness of man had increased to such a degree that none sought after good. All were evil and did evil in their own sight. 
And so God preserved Noah, saved him, sent him in the ark. He, together with seven other members of his family, considering him righteous and a preacher of righteousness. I'm not, I'm not certain that Noah <clears throat> got up in his lunch hours when he was taking a break from carpentry and he preached the gospel. I don't know. All I do know is that his lifestyle, his commitment to believe in God and to build the ark in faith, preached sermon of righteousness to an unbelieving world. And it shows us that inasmuch as you and I simply live a godly life and live for the Lord in the face of unbelief, even untruth and misinformation in the church, that it preaches. It preaches. And then we have thirdly, the last example, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's extraordinary to me that Peter three times speaks of righteous Lot. If you remember Lot, Lot tolerated living within one of the most ungodly cities in the world. He lived within the city, not on the outskirts, in the city. He was guilty of offering his virgin daughters to the men outside the door. Do you remember that? When Abraham and Lot looked over the basin before them from the mount, Lot said, I want that place. And so he took it. Lot also was committed, committed fornication with his daughters. Though he was drunk and drunk, his drunkenness is guilty for having placed him there. He was without his faculties because of his own actions. And yet Peter says that righteous man, that righteous man, his soul was tormented with ungodliness. Despite his sin, what, what, and Jesus affirms this in the Gospels, but despite his sin, he was troubled by the ungodliness of his generation. And he did not say that what was wicked was good. At the very least, though he sinned against God grievously, his soul was tormented by the ungodliness of his generation. And God commended his torment. And you know what he did? There's a different word used here. He didn't just protect him. He rescued him. You remember Lot when he's coming out of the city? He doesn't want to go. He wants to stay. And the angelic beings actually take his hand and pull Lot together with his family and his wife out of the city. His wife turns around. She wants to go back. She loved she loved the world. But God's messengers of mercy pulled Lot and his daughters away. There's an if-then connection here in the passage before us today. If God didn't spare angels, but consign them to hell and will judge them one day. If God rescued or if God protected Noah in the ark and destroyed through a flood every human being with the exception of those eight. If God did not spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but reduced them to ashes, much like what we observe in Maui, only worse, and yet rescued uh, uh, um, Lot, not Job, but Lot, 
and his family. Surely can't God keep his own people safe? Their destruction is very, very clear. The destruction of the wicked. They own their own airplanes. They live in mansions. They travel amongst the rich and famous. They influence the influencers. They appear in Larry King Live. They have all their books on the New York Times bestseller lists. They've all got a newfangled way of looking at the faith. But Peter says he knows how. God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Did you notice how condemnation and and the destruction seems to be personified? Jesus is the destroyer. Jesus will destroy the unbelievers and the false teachers. All teachers who knowingly deviate from the truth of God's word, who have embraced and teach untruth, who have embraced a life of sensuality and sin, who have enriched themselves, who are greedy for gain, even though they have extraordinary influence, are reserved for the day of God's judgment. And if you follow them in this life, you will follow them in the next. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Don't be so alarmed when we are few. There are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Or thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lastly and fourthly, do not fear. The Lord will keep you. Do not fear. The Lord will keep you. There's a dangerous attraction to false teaching, isn't there? Many professions, uh, professing Christians seem so gullible, so vulnerable, so easily misled. Sometimes we're easily misled. We listened to Joyce Myers in my truck for months and didn't really realize it, knew that this person was a little off, and then finally came to realize what she said was way too far. The truth is difficult to stand for sometimes. Peter uses the word trials. If you esteem more highly the truth of God, and his word is less important to you, then there will be a societal and relational cost You'll lose your own soul. But if the truth of God is more important to you and and societal and relational individuals and connections are of less importance to you, then the Lord will approve and the Lord will sustain you and keep you. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. 
If you're established in the truth, your faith will remain stable. Peter already told us that in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. God will keep you by his word. There's always an appeal to a brand of Christianity that appeals to our emotions, lays out an easier path for us to follow. Never mentions the difficult statements. I remember recently someone who died in the Christian world, a very significant name in the evangelical world, and someone who is a political analyst at a public in a public television studio said, you know, I followed that person and I loved what that person said apologetically. But in church, I never heard about sin, abortion, homosexuality. I never heard about the main teachings of Scripture. And one day I came to understand that the two cannot be separated. So even though I was fully into Christianity, I abandoned it altogether because I was leaving behind too many friends who were harmed by what I believed. That's a person who never really understood the gospel. That's a person who never heard the full biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is so easy. It's easy to adjust and it's easy to listen to someone who adjusts biblical language to fit more with contemporary sensitivity, bypasses the Christian's exercise of faith and understanding of the Word of God. It's always easier to offer a brand that mentions little of the obligations of obedience and fear and trembling and cross-bearing and pleasing the Lord and, and, and embraces the exciting. Who wouldn't want to go to a church with a cappuccino bar or a hip pastor with tattoos who rides into the service on a Harley? where songs aren't congregationally sung, but rather you sit down and you observe professional performances where preaching the whole counsel of God becomes the offering of messages. I hate that word. The preaching of the word of God is preaching. It's not a message. The message is somehow, it, 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 it suggests the idea that I have something to say, but... The Bible is the Word of God. And when the preacher stands and preaches the Bible, he preaches the oracles of God, not a message from himself. And certainly, don't we all want to leave happy and feeling good about ourselves? Well, when God destroyed the world through a universal flood which covered the earth, he had raised up Noah as a preacher of righteousness. He rescued him and his family. When God destroyed and reduced to ashes Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding countryside, God rescued Lot, his wife, his children. When you encounter untruth and when you're beguiled by things which seem true and yet you're troubled by the inaccuracy and the misstatements, God will keep you. God will preserve you. God will protect you. And even if you are perhaps caught up in it, he will rescue you like he rescued righteous Lot. He will pull you by the hand and say, you cannot go in there. Come out from among them. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the word. And don't we pray for that when we just prayed just a little while ago? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May God help us. May God help you. May he deliver us from evil. For there is in misinformation and false doctrine 
in heresy nothing but evil. May God keep us from evil. Let's pray. My Lord God, we pray that you would protect your truth and keep your word and preserve your people. We pray that you would keep us from untruth. We pray that you would help us to walk according to the word of God. And we pray that you would keep us from the discouragements of Satan that tell us what we really need is, and then fill in anything after that. If it's not the word of God, we're being led astray. Lord, keep us from listening to Satan from listening to the suggestions of a wicked and evil being who wants more than anything else for us to leave the faith, to destroy the foundation that Christ has firmly established us upon. But we know that all those whom have been given to Jesus Christ, not one can be lost. So keep us from harm, Lord. Keep us from harming ourselves or others. And keep us, Lord, from denigrating the name of Jesus Christ by embracing untruth or giving somehow some sort of credence to untruth or those who who trade in the currency of untruth for the sake of enriching themselves or pursuing their own sensual desires. Lord, we ask that you would keep us from wickedness and ungodliness that would mislead and cause us to forsake the Lord we love and to demonstrate in some way that we have been faking it all along but rather keep us establish us in the truth and cause us to walk in that truth until the day that we die for we are yours and you are our God and nothing whether powers nor principalities nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus so Lord help us to persevere And Lord God, preserve us. And Lord God, if it comes to us, rescue us. But rescue us from untruth. Establish us us in the truth, for your word is truth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together and sing Amazing Grace 433.